What is a successful career in showbiz? Is it a star whose work generates millions or billions of dollars? Is it winning Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, or Tonys? Even those that have won all four? Or maybe, just maybe, a real and honest successful career is about none of that. It's about consistency. It's about maintaining sincerity to your craft that allows you to always work. It's not about flash and money and awards. It's the work itself. And for that, you are rewarded with a career that has been moving steadily forward since you were a teenager. Today we have someone that has a consistency in what has become a legendary career. You might know him as an actor, as Greg Araki's muse, or as Frank the Rabbit in Donnie Darko. He is also a musician who has worked with David J. from Bauhaus and his heroes, the Jazz Butcher. We learn all about those career highlights and so much more from the energetic, effervescent, and innately self-aware James Duvall, who rips it up with us on this episode of $5 Buzz. gentlemen and welcome to yet another edition of five dollar buzz today i'm very excited and i uh got a special friend on this show but uh before we introduce him as we always do i want to uh, give a shout out to my two co-hosts first we've got mr george Cressar out there in connecticut how you doing sir i'm doing good man uh we got a lot of great content coming up i'm excited about this show and uh hearing from jimmy learning a little more about the film uh that we talked about on the last episode and uh i'm stoked man and of course in los angeles i have my brother from another mother mr peter liska what say you my friend great man i um i am uh, busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking competition as our great friend uh, eric Lewandowski likes to say george <laughs> pointed out so uh got i logged on here what 659 it's 703 and we're we're taking off and uh i'm excited because uh I've uh, heard a lot about you, James, and uh, we're looking forward to meeting you, man. Oh, I'm excited. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Really, Peter, George, uh, Roger. So, you know, I, uh, I've i known this gentleman for a few years now, and uh, we've got to uh, work together with a bunch of friends and so forth, and we've got to collaborate on a couple of projects. But, you know, uh, even before I met him, I certainly knew who he was. And uh, today on this particular program, we have Mr. James Duvall, who has been a legendary character actor at this point. I mean, it's, it's legendary status now, James, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hum- honestly, I'm humbled. You know, <laughs> I'm, I, was, I was actually just having the conversation at the post office, one of the people that I've known for years over there, since the 90s, actually. And she's like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm still making movies once in a while, you know. I, I mean, after 30 years, what more could I ask for, you know. I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. In years, man. And and when you were just a whippersnapper, and you know, of course, I mean, just for the audience uh, who may not know, uh, you, you started off working with a gentleman who you've been working with for, I mean, over your a whole career, Mr. Greg Araki, in movies like Totally Fucked Up, The Doom Generation, and of course, Nowhere, and even as recent as the uh, TV series. Uh, which is um, now Apocalypse, right? That's, uh, That's Soderbergh. Yeah, I just spoke to Greg today, actually. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, um, I guess there's a, it's the 25th anniversary of Nowhere, so they we're doing a bunch of interviews for it. Wait, it's how long? 25 years. Jeez, crazy. Yeah, I know. And that's the later movie. <laughs> that's the third one, yeah. That's, that's crazy. 
And, uh, you know, for those that, uh, you know, were growing up kids there, you know, we uh, he was in Independence Day playing one of the children of uh, Randy Quaid played your father, correct? Correct. Crazy old Randy Quaid and uh, who went <laughs> and helped save the uh, us from the uh, aliens. And he uh, was in the movie Go and he was in the movie Gone in 60 Seconds. But, you know, I think the movie that, you know, people always uh, sort of pigeonhole you for, you know, as far as that cult classic and the, the one that uh, you get, is it true that you probably get more, I don't know, fan mail or whatever based on Frank? In, uh, it's pretty it's pretty popular. It, it reminds me of when I went to go to Creation Records and meet Alan McGee, and he gave me all this stuff and took me down and, you know, took me to tea and took me down to the bottom of the basement and he said we do distribution out of here so everything on this half of the warehouse is creation records and everything on this half of the warehouse is oasis and so it's kind of i felt like i was everything on the other side of the warehouse <laughs> <laughs> not on the oasis side but i'm in the warehouse and i guess that's what counts right get out there slowly but surely and i think you know over the years like that's i couldn't ask for more to just still be here just real quick, you know, I saw the very first screening Donnie Darko had in public. And that Donnie was Donnie Darko is my oasis. That's the other half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I saw it in uh, Donnie Darko in Sundance at its premiere at the library. It was at the library. I, that was at the library. In fact, I had just driven 10 hours to get to that screening. And because I didn't have my tickets because everybody was inside, they wouldn't let me in. Oh, and really? They, yeah, they told me. I'm like, but I'm in the then, I would just snuck into the booth with me. Yeah, they go, uh, well, they said, uh, you don't have a ticket, so I know you're in the movie. We're sorry we can't let you in, but what we can do is as soon as the movie's over, you come back and you tell us and we'll let you in for the Q&A. I'm like, how am I supposed to know when the movie's over? So I kind of timed it out, and I remember... Yeah, so you were at the screening that I came in late to, and they... And Roger Ebert was in that screening. Yeah, and... and I, I watched it from the projection booth, the uh, projectionist, um, God damn it, I forget his Keith Madden, who was a Smithsonian Institute uh, projectionist, and I was I was working at Sundance at the time, and so he threw the headphones on me, and I didn't think much. You know, I wasn't Donnie Darko hadn't you know hadn't played yet, so nobody knew what. It, so I just going to see a fucking movie, and sat down, and you know I ended up watching this extraordinary movie, and what's funny is, every time I've seen it since, it's not that movie. In That's other a, words, I saw a version of the movie. That version that, of the movie is only the Sundance cut. There yeah, is no. That's, nobody ever the cut. that's my. Exactly. When people ask what my favorite cut is, you saw my favorite cut. I, and I was. I'm. I'm very lucky to have been one of those uh, chosen few. The score, the soundtrack, of course, was completely different mm-hmm. at the time, and he had to. Roger, you know what? I uh, I saw Donnie Darko one time, and the thing that I always remembered. And I'll never forget it was the scene with the Tears for Fear song with the cinematography is amazing. That's, like it really is a beautiful yeah, and poster. That goes. song just goes so good with that scene. And I watched it today and it's still incredible. And the scene where the dude is taking a bump of Coke in the locker and just the way all the characters are moving. And Alex Greenwald from Phantom Planet, that's him and Seth Rogen. Wow. <laughs> that's Seth Rogen? Okay. Because his hat, you saw the back of his head. I didn't really get a good. Uh, uh, lens on him, but just when it can't get any cooler, I completely forgot that Swayze was in the film. 
They go yeah. outside and Patrick Swayze's out there. Was did you get any interactions with him on set? Was anything I cool? did. I actually got to know Patrick really well. God rest his soul. Um yeah. <clears throat> believe it or not, he, he pretty just sick got, then too, wasn't he? Not not yet. Not yet. Um it was a couple years after that. Okay. He had um he had just done my friend's movie, uh the Bowie Brothers, but uh I believe Tony Bowie directed Green Dragon and it starred it was about the Vietnamese relocation from the end of the war to Camp Pendleton. Didn't Forrest Whitaker have something to do with it? Pardon? Didn't Forrest Whitaker have something to do with it? Forrest Whitaker is the other actor in that. Yeah, I right. played it okay. Sundance. Yeah. And yeah. so because I was friends, I, you know, I, I actually invited them to come down as a surprise because they knew I was working with Patrick. And when I introduced them, you know, I was like, hey, Patrick, I've got a surprise for you. And, you know, when they came in, it was sort of like family and friends of family. So I got to know them right off the bat pretty well. And um, I played in a band for a couple of years and he used to come watch our band play all the time and support us. And Swayze did? <laughs> Swayze, yeah. So I've spent, uh, can I say it, that we spent nights drinking and, and, and you know. Yes. It, you we can... had some pretty, we had some pretty unforgettable evenings and Patrick was always a gentleman and, you know, always the greatest guy and the biggest star in the room and the most normal person you could ever hang out with. So down to earth and so cool. I mean, yeah. I couldn't say enough great things about Patrick. You got you got to work with the young John Halls on their way up. I did. It was wonderful. I mean, it, Richard Kelly really did a great job putting. I got to say, because that script was the same kind of experience I think you had watching it. I read it, and I hadn't read a script quite like that in some time. I don't think ever, you know. But it was definitely up there as far as oh, I haven't read a script this good in a long time. And something where you don't. It's it's few and far between, and then it's a while before you really read something that I think stands out like that. Right. And it's a testament to Richard that the movie came out even, you know, better than the script. Because sometimes that doesn't always, doesn't always work out that way. Um, Absolutely correct. And, and yeah, and and the, and it just seemed it's one of those magical things where kismet really seemed to come into play because all the actors, uh, Stephen Post, the DP, the producers, everything along the way just couldn't. We couldn't ask for more in the situation we were because it still was a very little independent movie. Right. It also feels like good. Yeah, I mean, it's also like um. Wait, real quick, wasn't that Tears for Fears song? Head over heels. Wasn't that the Echo and the Bunny Men originally, and they put the Tears for Fears in that sequence? Well, actually, most of the songs are the same. A few are different. What it was is they put the Echo Bunny Men in the beginning of the aftercut of the director's cut or the theatrical cut. No, no, not the direct. The director's cut replaces the In Excess. That was the original opening song, Never Tear Us Apart. Then they changed that to to Under the Milky Way. Right, right. But the Tears for Fears Head Over Heels was always kind of there for the bus when they get out of the bus and they open the yeah. door and yeah. the camera like drops down with them. Okay. All right. So great, dude. So, uh, sorry, so Pete. Great. I didn't mean to cut you off. But... No, not a problem. All I was all I was gonna point out was that and maybe you guys can enlighten me, but what year did that come out? Because it feels like that movie was a kind of um, a gem in a in a rough year of or a rough era of film. It was like a refreshing kind of um, different independent picture. That if that maybe I'm wrong, but that's just that's kind of my memory about Donnie Darko when it came out. I think well, it, it was two thousand. It was two thousand one, and that was right. the only. See, it movie. felt like it felt like a late nineties film almost. It, well, that's around there, but it was yeah, two thousand one. It's yeah, set in it's set in it's set in eighty eighty eight. But it was right. filmed in 2000 and released in 2001, a month after 9/11. So as you oh, can imagine, wow, that, film that's got, right. that film got buried. 
It just I was blaring. Whoa. And how prescient too. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, I, I I still remember this. So the day after it came out, because this was October two thousand one, came out in October, and a small private Cessna or something like that had crashed into a house in Queens. Yeah. And so I oh, called up Richard, and yeah. Richard Kelly, the writer. And he's like, yeah, I, don't, I know. I've already gotten the calls. It's really weird, Jimmy. It's like life imitating art. It's one of those things. He's like, I don't know if this is going to help us. <laughs> what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I wouldn't much say it's the plane so much as pro- that plane so much as probably a couple of other jet planes that, you know, solidified the fate for the entire world the month before. So it was sort of this thing that just, it literally like got lost in the shuffle. So the fact that, you know, it became this word of mouth hit, which is another thing in itself, which is pretty cool. Like, you know, I couldn't ask for more, you know, that it did have, end up having some kind of life a couple of years later. You know, I'd forgotten about it. You know, I think 50 people saw it in the theater. Right. But then it just sort of grew with stature over time. And mm-hmm. there are people who are kind of weirdly obsessed about it. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those movies that it just you it was always a word of mouth movie. And like it was just Donnie Darko. Everyone knew about it or talked about it, or it was definitely well regarded, but it wasn't a com- you know, like a big commercial film that was, you know, back in those days in New York. I lived in New York in 2001 and there was a lot, you know, I believe it played at the Angelica in New York, if I'm not mistaken. Probably did, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then you know. Another film that I remember, uh, I think I, I remember renting it, I think one time was, uh, you know, Doom Generation. And then I was yeah. just, re- and I was just refreshing my memory about it. And dude, like the cast is pretty incredible with yourself, uh, Rose McGowan, Parker Posey, but I forgot that Perry Farrell was in the movie. <laughs> Do you re- was he on, were you on set with him at all? Uh, I was, and Perry's, Perry was cool, actually. I, he's cool. I got to say, uh, the original nice first guy. day we didn't film with them because the second day of filming, which was supposed to be the first day with Perry, was the '94 Northridge quake. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. So it hits at like 4:30 in the morning. Jonathan Sheck, who plays X, Xavier, still comes because he's picking me up to go to work every day because we were like on this road trip movie. So we bond, you know, we bonded. And he came to pick me up and like, did you get the call that we're not filming? It's like no, and it's like well, we're probably filming. So we drive over and we're, you know, it was somewhere in the valley from, and I was living in Silver Lake. And I just remember driving as the sun was coming up, looking at all the devastation, you know, pieces of the freeway had fallen in a few parts of the city. And we made it all the way to the liquor store or the quickie mart we're filming with, and nobody was there. So Jonathan and I kind of, you know, again, who plays Xavier in Doom Generation, kind of feel like we're living Doom (laughs) Generation. So he drives me back. We get back to my place, I think, about eight in the morning and get a call and uh, literally writers were getting back to my place and at the time we had pagers so we had to stop and give the call it's like okay well we're not at that location we're not filming there but we are filming the jennies are powered up it's a go we can't afford to take a day off and so we filmed through that entire aftershock through the devastation of all that which added this sort of strange i think atmosphere not only to the set but for all of the actors involved and you did yeah. feel like it was, you were in this apocalyptic Doubt about it. Yeah. Especially with no was, cell phones in those days, too. No, there was no, we had pagers. And at the time, bar, I was, right? yeah. The reason why we had pagers is so they could find it because we would disappear. <laughs> I do remember that. I mean, you had 20 year old actors. It's, yeah. it's hard to keep, you know, it's hard to keep. Yeah. yeah. I got to say, you know, 
I'm lucky to be doing this 30 years later. So I'm like, yeah, no, no. I mean, you won't have to look for me. I'll, I'm on set all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here. I'm, I'm professional. I'm responsible now. Yes. I, 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 yeah. I brush my teeth. I wake up in the morning. Yeah. Um, I show up when I'm supposed to. And I know my lines. <laughs> yeah. That year too, you know, it's, I keep forgetting, man, you were, uh, you were in two Sundance films the year of Donnie Darko. You were in the Doughboy too, weren't you? I was. I was very. I'm yeah. still very proud of that movie. Yeah, that's a good yeah. film. That's a solid movie. A Native American film, and you uh, it says here you won a Best Actor at the American Indian Film Festival. Yeah. So how yeah. do you? I mean, I, I, Jimmy, I don't. I are you part Native American? Is that yeah, my father's side. Ah, you know, I don't think we ever talked about that. Yeah, I mean, it's that. Well, we're what we would call urban Indians. So we grew up kind of detached from the family and in the city. And I, you know, didn't. Oh, you like the exiles. You ever seen that great movie from the sixties about uh, the uh, native Americans living downtown Los Angeles. It's very much like that. You know, it's, um, it's a, it's a term coined by Vindaloria, this incredible native writer, but it's called urban Indians. And it's like people who integrated, we integrated into society. And it's not that people on the res didn't integrate, you know, but they try to carry on the traditions and speak the language and carry on the culture while we've just been homogenized and blended right. in. So it wasn't until I did the Doughboy that I kind of came in touch with my native roots a bit. And, you know, we would film for six days and then we would sweat on the seventh, do a sweat lodge. We did that for the entire duration of the film. Um, one of the guys in the movie was our medicine man, who's also in the film. I believe all the actors and 98% of the crew were, 98% of the actors and 98% of the crew were native as yeah. well so, I mean, we had sundance had an extraordinarily strong native american program at that time i was they did they did you know Robert redford's that was his that was his pet project you know as far as like that was like his thing that he was in and yeah, heather ray and bird running water were bird running water that's right bird yep bird absolutely he uh, was the uh he was the head programmer for the uh yes remember bird well yeah yeah so you know again it's like Throughout, you know, I guess as you know, we're saying, and it, and because like you know, I, I don't really think about it much to be quite honest. I've been, I feel very fortunate to be talking with you, gentlemen, here today, promoting a movie like I Challenger, and still being able to perform and do movies like I Challenger, after all these years. And I've been very lucky to work in a lot of different genres of film and different types of actors. You know, sometimes the films work, sometimes the performances work, and sometimes they don't. And you know, you, I. I think I'm confident enough to say that when I was younger, that would have been an ego bash for me, you know, as to where I'm older, it's really more become about becoming a journeyman and maybe one day a craftsman and what I do. And the way that you do that is you just keep doing it and you keep putting yourself out there and you challenge yourself. So, you know, whether it's a comedy, drama, you know, sci-fi, yeah. rom-coms on, you know, kind of try to do it. I mean, music, I did that musical with Dan Mervish and Anthony Rapp, you know, they were the original rent that open house music house, yes that i that one best director at my film festival oh i didn't know about that yeah when i ran a silver lake film festival that's how i first got to know dan yeah yeah so that was an that was an Dan started uh slam dance for anybody who doesn't know yes um and we were scheduled to do a movie back in the 90s that fell apart unfortunately but um it's you know it's 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 kind of fun to do it's not kind of fun it's 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 a lot of fun to experiment and sometimes it works and like we we're saying and as you know as filmmakers and fans sometimes it doesn't you know but 
to have the opportunity to go out and try and do stuff like that and be a part of it. So where I can say, well, yeah, you know, I've worked with people like Greg Rocky and then I've done movies like Donnie Darko and then to Independence Day and full swing all the way back to I Challenger. Yeah. So talk about I Challenger. And I know that um, uh, they had reached out to me. Paul did. Uh, I know that Karen knows you too, but I uh, just was getting my, uh, my two cents. And um, how did you, when you read the script, I, I almost think, you know, it, the, the movie was almost tailor-made for you. <laughs> it almost <laughs> like it was written for you, the way you play the role. I haven't seen you so comfortable, like just like just sitting in that. It, it uh, I don't know. It's it's uh, you got to express quite a range in that motion picture. Uh, something you don't always get to do, you know, and and you know, uh, particularly when you're uh, not playing the main character, but you got you know you. You, you go from this uh, sort of angsty, angry, self-involved human being and, you know, you sort of in the moment of being in alone in a claustrophobic environment, you sort of discover yourself <laughs> and uh, you go through a range of uh, transformative emotional, uh, you know, uh, waves there as the movie progresses towards the end in particular that second half when that movie really comes alive and kicks in and you uh, you have to literally claw your way back to humanity so to speak <laughs> get your heart out Boba Fett <laughs> <laughs> but um, I appreciate thank you for the kind words I appreciate that I'm, I, I don't want to sound cliche-ish but it's true and you hear all the actors the best actors say it but it really is it's it's, it's paul and kara's script yeah it really i can only do so much with the material i'm given and i've learned to you know when i first started working with greg in the early 90s it was you you weren't allowed to add little improv so i had to learn and i'd come from doing theater as well where you rehearsed everything so moving into film became this completely different thing after greg Rocky because all I, I had the blueprint, all I had to do was memorize it. And then when you started getting thrust into situations where it's like, well, you know, the rough scripts there, just say what you want and do what you want. All of a sudden as a young actor, who's so dependent on the material, it was like a deer in headlights. Yeah. So I had to spend, a, well, I still do now. I spent the next 30 years of my career learning to improv and ad lib to write and sort of do these things. And the only way you're really going to advance, at least for me, and this is for any profession, really, is you got to challenge yourself. Do things that you're not comfortable, that you don't feel like you're good at. Challenge yourself. Do things that you're afraid of. And once in a while, you succeed. And you succeed, I think, brilliantly. Um, so that's kind of like the philosophy behind it. So when something like I Challenger comes along, you know, it's the culmination of all those sorts of things where I got to say at the end of the day, I didn't really change any of the script. I didn't, I, there was no need to, it was all in the writing. Paul and Kara's writings, fantastic. And I got to say, I really identified with what they wrote. I know originally he had a different physical type in mind for the character, Yeah. but it was easy to make mine. Cause I think Roger, you know me well yeah. over the years. So it is really kind of me or could be me and, in a lot of ways is parts of me. So it was kind of, you know, anything else, just not being ashamed of these sorts of things and letting them come out, you know, and embracing them. It allowed your vulnerability that you are capable of tapping into without any kind of hesitation, which is, yeah. 
you know, I, when people tell me that acting is easy or they look at it and say, man, I can do that for a living. I go, no, you can't. You can't do that. You Getting yourself exposed in front of a group of people who are all looking at you with with judgmental eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, we got to hurry up. I mean, acting is especially on a movie set with hot lights. and Yeah, it's fuck you. Did that get any easier? I mean, you've had a career now. You're saying 30 years. Does it get any easier from when you were a kid in your 20s to now showing up now? It's it, certainly I'm a, or, I'm a lot more comfortable. Yeah, I can say like I don't get intimidated anymore. Um, it, uh, for instance, when we were shooting I Challenger, we shot the entire movie in 12 days. So I was shooting 11. We didn't have time to worry. <laughs> no, yeah, that's so really, that's it really was. And, and one, of the, one of the fun parts. So in that I was able to go into really complete immersion. So since we we're filming six day weeks for 12 days, I only had one day off, really. So I just have it was kind of like doing theater. So I just have to be well prepared, well rehearsed, ready to go. And then we'll see what happens when we go show up to set and collaborate. And it just so turned out that the collaboration between Paul and I and our DP and the crew, I mean, you couldn't ask for a, for a smoother collaboration. I mean, you really couldn't. A lot of it has to do because they are Paul's team as well. But it's a testament, I think, to Paul's resume and crew you know he's been a commercial video director for some of the best a-list bands and the musicians in the world yeah. for as long as i've been making yeah movies. and yeah it's that preparedness you're speaking of you oh, know oh. And people that are in that are in the business for as long and and Eric's experience as paul you know he as he was yeah. it's being well, prepared than, actually yeah yeah and you so gotta he drive you gotta, be, you gotta be ready to go for an aggressive schedule like that you gotta be prepared <laughs> yeah he, he and, and and that brings it to the table so when you come to the table we're like that when everybody's prepared it's a joy. I remember daily going, wow, we just like nail. We just went through that, those pages. We're just moving through this 10, 11 pages, wham, wham, like a hot knife through butter. And it's like, it's those moments when you go, wow, I'm in that zone. You know, you feel it. You're like that, like that athletic zone. As an oh, actor, yeah. it's the same thing, I, get in that zone. And the it's difference- those wins. It's the win of making the day too, isn't it? The win of getting that stuff, like the personal feel. It sounds, that's you awesome. Feel great, you feel great about it. So you hope that the movie does well, but the personal satisfaction after 30 years comes from that feeling at the end of the day. Because the rest is, out, for me, is I'm out of control of that stuff. So I can only do the best that I can and I'm on set. Hope that it's the right thing. Works out in the editing room and then, come, and then plays out. But being able to just focus on that it, it was it really was a wonderful feeling to to feel great at the end of the day and feel like we were in this zone not just me but the entire team and it i, I said it to myself a couple of times i'm like i guess if we break out of this zone we could fuck this up can i say that yeah you know, we could screw this up but um yeah you can there's say no way that's gonna that. after 30 years there's just no way that's gonna happen i'm exactly in the place i want to be these are the moments you know and i hear actors a lot of actors, beginning actors anyway, say these things. Sometimes some of the ones that have been around for a while too, but you know, you spend so much time to get one day on set or five days on set and five, six months, a year, five to do these things. And so shouldn't all your energy be about that set? And instead of working with these people in the time, by the time they get to set, they're just thinking about awards or red carpet, but they don't know the dialogue. You're absolutely you're like, right. What are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, you're not going to create magic like that. You're going to you're yeah. create it when everyone's in that in that zone together, which is that's the that's the that's what it's all about. It's so, awesome. So that was it's, cool. Yeah, it's nice when everybody like Paul and Karen and I said and and, and everybody that was involved. The, you know, 
the actors that agreed to be part of iChallenger as well. Everyone from Margaret Cho to Jerry Bednob and Dag Fairchild. I mean, <laughs> I thought they were all really, really wonderful. I couldn't have asked for more. Do you know that um, if, and I, if you looked up IMDb, uh, you and I, I'm a producer, you're a film actor, uh, amongst other things, but uh, you and I have acted in four movies together, and that would be one of this is one of them. I had that role as the Sergey, yeah. Thank uh, you for inspiring me to go to go bury myself, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I looked it up, I go, I've been in fucking four movies where I've I had a like a, you know. A small part in some goddamn movie. It, we, we're both in Mad Cowgirl. We're both wow. We are both in Mad. We're both in Carlos spills the beans. Carlos spills the beans, and we're both in American Romance. Oh, I forgot about American Romance. The fucking movie we did up in Idaho. Yeah, I forgot about that movie. Brad Cohen. That was a, that was a fun movie. I'm sorry it, it didn't work out. My stuff. There's there's so there's an example. Work out, I period, tried to do something on that it. movie and it didn't quite work out. And that that, that happens sometimes. That movie just wasn't good, but the, well, that happens too sometimes. But we did our best. We did everything we could, and so that's all we can do. What was important is we had a good time. We had a great time. <laughs> and uh, the other thing too, of course, was uh, in that quarter lane. What's the name of the hamburger joint? That hamburger joint's unbeatable. Dude. I can't believe I forgot that it's been around for 170, probably 120 something years now. Because we you shot that movie twice a day, practically, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I was lifting weights <laughs> every day. I was lifting quite quite intensely at the time. These hamburgers were ridiculous, guys. They were. We'll have they, to figure what it. it's it, it's on, on the Zagat survey. It's considered the second or third greatest hamburger joint in all the United States. In the entire country. Entire and, country. and when you eat there, and there's not much but burgers and fries. That's it. It's not fancy. You'll understand why. Yeah, the way that they. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, so Jimmy, I think we're gonna go to a break right now. And when we come back, I think we'll talk uh, talk a little more on Challenger, a little more movies. But I want to also talk about music. I would I love know to talk about near, music. Near to your heart, my friend. So uh, we'll take a little bathroom break, and we'll be right back. Hey, this is your friend Pete, $5 Buzz. I'm telling you to check out a new podcast called In the Rotation. It features uh, Brian Jones and Patrick Ryder, two cannabis industry insiders with a unique lens into a budding frontier industry. High-profile guests will discuss everything from legislation, regulation, social equity, legalization, product development, marketing strategy, innovation, and, of course, consumption. Please subscribe on all platforms so you never miss an episode. And we're back on $5 Buzz with today's guest, uh, Mr. James Duvall. Uh, we really appreciate your time, James. Um, I know we talked a lot about acting, but uh, as Roger tells it, you are... Uh, a musician as well and i know i believe you grew up in detroit michigan obviously there's a lot of great music that comes from that part of the world well you know obviously motown punk rock i know a lot of electronic early electronic music came from detroit you had madonna you had hip-hop with you know royce to five nine yeah, yeah acid house also comes out of the iggy pop to acid house to detroit acid house so much great music so what was it mc5 like? the stooges yeah. alice cooper and bob seger all bob seger and the silver bullet band yeah. what was it like I'm, I'm, uh what do you remember about detroit and what kind of music was uh influential to you uh coming up um well i i left detroit when i was a kid 
So I ended up growing up in LA, believe it or not. I mean, I went back and forth until the early eighties, to be honest. So I was going back and forth till I was about 10 or 11. Um, when I was really young, I was into uh, really into Motown and Elvis and Supremes. <laughs> but uh, then you were listening to what your parents were listening to. Yeah. Well, I, usually yeah, that- there was that. I mean, my parents were, they, were working, so I was a brother or by a family, somebody, yeah. believe it or not. So I was listening to what the family that was taking care of me okay. was, you know, very similar. Like I remember listening, oh, this is the record to hear back in '76, and they're playing Led Zeppelin. You're four years old, going, this is weird, but you know. And then getting older and hearing Rain song, going, oh, this is what we were listening to. I remember, I, I still remember the smell of her hair and the, the room and the, the white like cotton curtains blowing in the breeze I remember it brought everything back so it was kind of raised with that in the very very beginning but you know also moving to LA I was exposed to punk rock pretty early on as it was you know in the late 70s so as it was happening yeah you know, with X and the Go-Go's before they were the Go-Go's and um, the Germs and uh, by the time I got so everything that that kind of came along with you know I think also I was a product of early K-Rock when it was Rock of the 80s. When it was a really great station. There. It really was. You would call I, them. I, I remember I, calling them up and requesting K-Rock a song. used to be a bad motherfucker. They really fucking were. You could call them up and go, hey, I want to hear this. Go, hey, sorry, we already played that song today. We don't yeah. play two songs yeah, the same, yeah, exactly. on the same day. That's what they used to be. And, and they would play local band cassettes on Mondays from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. You had Rodney on the Rocks. Rodney, Rodney Bingenheimer. Yeah. And, and there was, so there were so many kind of great bands, uh, punk rock to alternative and post-punk and hardcore that I was introduced to. Well, and right. United, wait, wait, K-Rock was the funnel uh, in the United States for uh, the rest of the country would not have even heard of The Cure. Depeche Mode, Depeche Mode, the Smiths, absolutely. You know, uh, they all funneled uh, through K Rock. Tears for Fears. That's what I was listening. So I remember as a kid buying Tears for Fears and the Smiths when they were together on cassette at Warehouse or Music Plus. We had a place out here called Licorice Pizza. Oh, Um, yeah. But you know, so it was a big thing to go by P.T. Anderson. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to buy cassettes and records and go home and listen to it and pull out the sleeve notes and look at the artwork. And oh, that's yeah. kind of like you didn't understand it when you were a real little kid. But when you got older, what engineers and producers and sleeve designers and, you know, record company people were. So how important they were and what the big part they played. It's like Alan McGee, Alan McGee from Creation Records, for instance. Right. Who gave us everything from like My Bloody Valentine to Oasis to the Weather Prophets and to all the jangly pop and punk rock in between. And of course, had a couple of bands himself, uh, Biff Bang Pow. And uh, I guess it was more Ed Ball, but he was doing a little bit of acid house music too. So they got into a little bit to that electronic thing. Mm-hmm. But growing up, you know, in the midst of all that and then breaking into the film business at 18 with Gregor Rocky, who's if you've seen any of his movies, they're really very musically dominated, especially the early yeah. films. Oh, yeah. And so that's the thing we had in common. So, you know, I kind of thrust myself into all that. And fortunately, from working in the film business, I got to meet childhood heroes like Love and Rockets. You know, when, you know, it's funny because they were Bauhaus first, but I didn't meet Peter Murphy till after I met Love and Rockets. But eventually met them. Well, Peter Murphy was not in Love and Rockets. No, it was uh, Bauhaus and then Bauhaus broke up. 
for the one people that don't know. And then they became Tones on Tales. Yeah, and uh, well, Daniel and Daniel Ash and Kevin started Tones on Tail with Glenn Campling on bass. And David J went to go over to play with another band who just opened for Bauhaus in 83 before they broke up called the Jazz Butchers. Ah. And well, David well, show us your shirt real quick there, James. Yeah, so David J started playing with the Jazz Butcher, believe it or not, as he had met them through his younger brother Kevin from Bauhaus who recorded a little piece with them and he Eagle Eye Pop Detective David J had spotted them playing a show and though their music is quite different and they when they opened for Bauhaus let's just say that the band were happy to walk away unscathed <laughs> physically but it really did sort of set the precedent for the future of this band and you know so to cut a long story short you know they record they cut two two LPs with uh, David J before he went back with uh, Daniel Ash and Kevin Haskins to reform Bauhaus without Peter Murphy, which is Love and Rockets. I, I would never be afraid to be at a Bauhaus concert. I mean, I love Bauhaus to begin with, but uh, they're too busy slicing their own uh, wrists and uh, slashing <laughs> out at you. So, yeah, you know, there's hardly a crowd to be afraid of. Not, not quite the uh, same as a Rage Against the Machine type of crowd. Oh, no, yeah. I think how my how things have changed since the early, early 80s. Yeah, yeah. But you know, fucking Bauhaus. People never give that band enough credit. I mean, or no, they're still. I mean, they're still great. I mean, Peter's still out there playing. I mean, all the guys are out there still playing. That band yeah. really started a fucking thing, and their music doesn't sound like anybody else. And anybody oh. else that did, they sound like them. And it's, it's. I mean, they were right there in that post-punk when Joy Division had their thing, Bauhaus had their thing, but everybody, you know, I mean, I love Joy Division. Everybody yeah, embraced too. Joy Division. And, and New Bauhaus, Order, of course. Yeah. But Bauhaus found a huge audience here again in Los Angeles. That they was, like, well, and, and they're touring the world right now. They've been touring. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they became, they blew up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I got lucky. So I became pretty good friends with them because I became friends with Love and Rockets first. So when Bauhaus got back together at the end of the 90s, I was playing soccer with them. With David Peter or Daniel Ash. Peter and Kevin and Daniel. David wasn't playing soccer with us, but oh, okay. I got to know I know David quite well. He's quite become quite a good friend of mine actually over the years. Uh, yeah, didn't you do wrote, a, Did you work with him on that play he did? I did. He wrote an album um, called Silver for Gold based off of Edie Sedgwick's life in the in the factory with Andy Warhol. And he wrote a play about it where he performed the album and I was one of the actors in the play and we'd performed it in two, I was an understudy in 2008. But the actor passed away, God rest his soul. And I ended up taking over and we did the play again at the Red Was that at the Barnsdall Park? Pardon? Did that play at Barnsdall Park? No, it was playing at the Met Theater originally. And then when I did the show, it was at the Red Cat Theater downtown. Um, So we did it at the the Red Cat, uh, which was quite fun. But, you know, David's quite secretive about that stuff. So you can buy the album and hear it, but there's no images or video available of the play. You had to have had to have watched it. <laughs> to, so to give you an example, I I sort of the narrator of the play. I narrate the play throughout uh, Norik, which is uh, the wounded healer. So Norik is Chiron backwards. Chiron the, being the first centaur. So being a wounded healer, I appear on the play as I roll out on a wheelchair with the broken body of a man and the head of a horse. Kind of looks like the horse's head from Godfather, mm-hmm. but no blood and the eyes blink and they move around and I've got a mic inside to speak through it. So I introduced the play from the underworld as Norik for him as we kind of bring you into this multimedia thing with uh, 
the actress who plays Edie Sedgwick telling you about her time in the factory mm-hmm. and with, you know, the journey all the way to where she kills her, you know, she dies. Did she kill right. herself or did she OD on accident? But either way, she ended up dying, she OD'd. And so I helped bring her back to the underworld and that's the end of the play. Um, it's it, it's a quite a magical journey because truth being told out of all those bands and everything we talked about, by the time we got to the early 90s, I was introduced to a band called the Jazz Butcher. I didn't know that they actually played with, David and Kevin had played with them at first, although I was a huge fan of Love and Rockets and Bauhaus. Um, so I became this obsessed, I mean, really quite obsessive fan. If you read any of my early uh, bios after Independence Day or whatnot, 94, 95, I still remember them saying, you know, I live, you can find me on a park bench anytown USA or in your local record store searching for obscure JBC LPs. And I planted that in there. So if ever I met Jazz Butcher fan, you know, they would call me out, which actually happened a few times, um, to which I'm fans and friends, with, I mean, friends to this day, but we're both huge Jazz Butcher fans. Um, and so I've connected a, lo- a lot of people over the years. After I did Independence Day, it was Roland Emmerich who, since we were going to London for the premiere. Oh, Independence Day, yeah. Yeah, he, he said, why don't you invite, because I was obsessive, so people were tired of hearing about the Jazz Butcher from me. I mean, I had to learn that if I love the band, I really need to shut my mouth sometimes because <laughs> <laughs> people are just have, I'm pushing people away from him. Um, but so, you know, it was really sweet. Roland, you know, he just said, hey, we're going to London, you know, Jazz Butcher's English, right? Why don't you just invite him to the premiere? So I invited him to the premiere, cut a long story short, he showed up. We hung out the entire week uh, and became friends from that moment on. Then Roland and I went to go see, you know, they apparently had broken up the year before. And I was, you know, when I met him like, okay, I know you broke up, but just please don't stop doing music and blah, blah, blah. So before I left London at the end of the week, he's like, well, it turns out that Max and I, his old guitar player, he stopped playing with in the 80s. We're going to play a show as the Jazz Butcher in Mallorca, Spain. So three weeks later, I flew over and saw them play the show at Spain, which was my first time getting to see them. Got insanely drunk with them till four in the morning where I could barely stand, barely walk, barely hold their guitars as they bravely let me attempt to pick it up and play. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Again, solidifying this really kind of great friendship that over the, you know, and that was 96. So over the years, they, had, they ended up getting back together Believe it or not, I was working on editing sound files earlier because Pat Fish, who just recently passed away, God rest his soul, um, devastated us all. So I went back and realized that I had tons of old demo tapes and material that him and the band sent me back in the 90s. So I digitized all of it. The Jazz Butcher is one of those bands that, um, and I, (laughs) it was like one of those bands that circled around, you know, the the universe that I was trucked in. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the songs I remember most fondly is "The Devil Is My Friend." Yeah. <laughs> and then he went too far. The uh, um, I have the demo I, of that, but they they were kind of like a uh, how was how would I put that? Um, they the they had sort of this like the residence, you know, and that they had a following by uh, and those who followed them were like slavishly following them like, right you know? like myself yeah yeah exactly Un- unabashedly unashamedly so right 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 like, like nobody heard of them 
but then when you did, you you fell. You know, it was one of those things. You 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 once you listened to him, you became a fan. Yeah, if you hear you're, anything like "Devil Is My Friend" or "Drink" or "Party Time," how could you not love the exactly. guys? It's. Do uh, you remember the residents? Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the most. They what probably about sixty-five albums that they've released. Seventy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's what I, that's the, one of the things that attract me to certain musicians is when they're good and they're prolific. I mean, it's great when you love someone who's got one album, but you know, one album only take you so so far. Well, it worked for the Sex Pistols. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, okay, so for instance, um, I'm going to be working on a video or two. Paul's going to be directing it for the new Jazz Butcher album coming out next month. So he has one album left coming out posthumously, and <clears throat> I got to say, it's a not only is it a joy that as a fan that it's coming out and more than a joy to be working on it, but it's his, I thought the last album was the penultimate and this album, the highest in the land by the jazz butcher. This is a penultimate album. This is his Bob Dylan's rough and rowdy ways. This is his sort of like a swan song. that certainly, I mean, a, a power, it's a, that's a powerful album. as something to contend with. What you're saying is good. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> 11 out of 10 easily. <laughs> well, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it'll be, out, it'll be out next month. Um, uh, shameless plug, the jazz, but your highest in the land. Out on Pete Records, February 4th. Pete, what do you get? What do you got, Pete? I'm, just, I'm loving the nuanced conversation about this, about these bands. I mean, of course, I've heard of Bauhaus and, and uh, you know, I love Joy Division. My knowledge is nowhere near as deep, but just hearing you guys go on. I mean, I definitely want to check out the Jazz Butcher. That's on. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll check that out for sure. I mean, totally inspires, inspires, uh, um, inspires me wanting to hear some some other new music. And so I guess, J uh, James, have um you played with a lot of musicians and you've been like in a uh name some of the, the the music that you've done talk about some of the music that you personally done i know you guys had a an outfit for a minute you guys were briefly called gene wilder that, that yeah, when about the time i met you you know uh, that was that was quite fun um believe it or not so i grew up playing piano since i was about six i didn't pick up a guitar till i was 19 when i heard the jazz butcher Although I was a huge, like huge fan of all the bands we were talking about earlier, the Smiths were one of my favorite bands. But I didn't pick up a guitar or was inspired to play till I heard the Jazz Butcher, and I started playing when I was nineteen. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I'm self-taught, so it wasn't till I think my early thirties. So I'd been playing for about 12, 12, 13 years at this point. I went to go buy weed from a friend of mine, and he was at this recording studio, and he's like, "Well, I'm actually out, but my friend here, who's in this recording studio, has some. So why don't you come down?" And when I went down to get the, to get my flower, uh, turned out he goes, oh, I need this guitar. And it was this hip hop kind of stuff. And I'm into like surf, you know, punk rock, jazz butcher, rockabilly, you know. Yeah. He was sort of like, you know, you play guitar. Hey, do you think you kind of throw down this that kind of reggae surf guitar thing? So I went in the booth and in 15 minutes wrote the guitar for it and kind of amazed myself about it and had a really good time doing it. and. From then on, I ended up joining his band. And that, uh, that band was? That band was Antonius Maximus and the Nuthouse Band. <laughs> and we recorded our first album out of the Black Eyed Peas studio in Glendale uh, for free because Motivate heard it and loved the stuff we were doing. And 
sort of took in, took us under his wing, the old their old DJ, and then uh, Apple D App and Dante Santiago, their backup singer, did some songs with us as well. They loved. They jumped on board, and Kid from Kid and Play came and did four or five songs with us. So it was quite a joy to be part of something like that, you know. And at the same time, I was. It's not that I was taking a break from acting, but I wasn't pursuing it. I was kind of burnt out from the ego and uh, the money and uh, the popularity. I just, I just needed a break from it. It was the early 2000s. At this point, I'd been doing it for over a decade. And it was kind of like banging your head against the wall. It's like uh, something Max Eider from the Jazz Butcher told me, which is very true. After a while, you figure out it starts to hurt. What you do is you stop banging your head against the, the wall because that's what it's like sometimes. You're just like, ugh, ugh. And so sit back and just play some music without yeah. any responsibilities. So anytime any, I got asked anything, it's like, I don't know, I'm just a guitar player. You gotta, you gotta talk to this over there. And so it was, it was a joy to record the album, play out live, have a residency for a couple of years at BB King's at Universal Walk before it was gone, the House of Blues on Sunset before it was gone, yeah. at the old Derby before it was yeah, gone. Yeah. Um, and so it was a lot of fun to do that and play around town. And then of course, by the time money real money started coming in the band started to fight so i was out i mean that's why i kind of took a break from acting right i didn't want to be yeah, yeah. You, you heads and, fun. and money yeah that was and that was my handshake i'm in this until it's fun and when it's not fun anymore i'm out of the band and so all i want is copyright for the music i wrote and i'm out no no harm no foul no contracts no worries and i went through this a kind of a there was a time in my life right after that where it kind of came to bits right before I moved in with Brian McGuire, the lad. And that kind of was like a second, that was a regeneration, like a second life for me in a lot of ways. So I was pursuing acting again, but I was also living with someone who was extremely passionate about making movies and, and making music and, and watching it and listening to it and doing it and, and wasn't going to let And not waiting for anything. anybody telling him that he, that he could he and, just and did it did it yes and, and so really i have brian and brett to think about that for bringing brett, me on brett roberts bringing yeah. me in yeah and and kind of really taking care of me at a time when i really you know this is when you those that saying when you really need friends and you know who's there for you i, I didn't know it i didn't know i need i wasn't i wasn't i was trying to push people away and they welcomed me with open arms into this circle that you know I mean, the guys are still around. We're all friends, but it's not what it once was back then. It was this creative cauldron and bubbling genius at the time. But you, you no longer have the piano bar. So that's why, you know, so. There's, there's... Yeah. And well, you know, we're all separated. We're all in different places. Yes. You know, Brett's in, always in a different part of the world. And yeah. Brian's working on, always working on. And same, like, you know, we're all working, but on different projects. That included some really weird people. Like Harry Dean Stanton was involved in that crew. And, uh, John Hawks and yeah, yeah, Nick Stahl, Nick Stahl, and Boone, um, Boone Mark Boone Jr., Boone, and then yeah. Andy Clockwise, and then Boone, of course, who's been on this show. Uh, so yeah, so there was a, a whole uh crowd there. Terry Wayne, of course, we all know Terry, yeah, we love Terry, He's uh, the star of our movies, really. And it was, it, there was a, a minute there, uh, when I found you guys. It was funny. I was in I was in three camps at that time. There was this Burke Roberts camp, and there was this Calvin Lee Reader camp, and then there was this what at the time it was Brett Roberts, Brett Roberts camp, but it became I soon realized it was McGuire as much as as it was Brett. You know, yeah, it was, it was weird. I was kind of bouncing around between all three y'all. It was a lot of fun though being here during the 
uh, mid to late 2000s. I mean, good people. I still remember I met, I had gone through this other pretty bad breakup. It seems to be like the, the, the theme of my life, like really bad breakups. But I go through this bad breakup. My life would go to bits. I'd be really depressed. And then my friends would kind of be there for me. And I remember one night, it was Christmas and I was alone. And Brett came over to pick me up in 2003. And he took me over to meet the lad, meet Brian for the first time on Christmas Day. And he was like on ecstasy. Or my <laughs> and that's how I first met Brett. The lad on Christmas Day through Brett, and it's kind of you know. And for anybody that knows him, you know, this is something he'd be very proud of me to tell this story. Of course, yeah, I'm yeah, not ashamed of this at all. So you get it, and when yet when you meet him, he's not this crazy rambunctious. He's this very soft-spoken, very down-to-earth guy. You know, he just does have this fun, wild side to him still. And you hear these kind of things, you find out these kind of stories about him, and it's really rather impressive. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm pr- I'm proud to know the man. Yeah, and he's done some he's done some good shit. You know, we uh, we yeah, uh, I produced a couple of films for him, and you were in a couple of those. So yeah, I'm I'm really always been inspired, still inspired by you guys. Yeah, it was, uh, go ahead. I was gonna say, James, I noticed that you mentioned a lot of the venues that you played at or your friends were playing at uh, no longer exist. I, you know, yeah. it's curious to me, especially like live performance venues seem like they got hit pretty hard uh during the pandemic yeah and i mean it's, what it's, what's it's, the scene like now is it you know i bet you all the music i, there I, is, I have in my head that, as far as i know i mean right. but to be fair you know since the pandemic really hit if i'm not filming i don't go out i don't i don't do stuff i had it i'm triple vaxxed but you know um I try to be careful. You know, I just filmed a little, a little something for a friend of mine a couple days ago, and I'm going to go next month. I'm working on this documentary kind of thing or film. I'm filming scenes as Kim Kahana, the old Hawaiian stuntman. Oh um, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, so I'm I'm playing him at one phase of his life. So I'm going to go film that in Florida next month. So then for me, it's more the idea of like I just need to be in shape and have my wits about me, not get sick, so I can at least film those days. So if I get sick there, hopefully it's the end of the, it's, I, I think I'm only filming three days. So by the time I can, I can film it and then come back home and be sick and recover if I do end up getting sick. But the idea is to be able to work because it's so difficult. Uh, I was working on this movie with Michael Madsen and. Uh, Goddamn his son today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, I just got a text about it. I was working, I'm working on a series with him too. I did a two pilots with him during the pandemic. But uh, I'm sorry, I didn't yeah, mean. I'm still working on. So we're still working on stuff together, and it's all kind of on hold because of the pandemic. Yeah, um, I was, I was, you know, uh, I was thinking to myself, a lot of these live music venues probably got crushed, and all the musicians are just raring to go because they probably came up with some a lot of new material. They've been practicing for longer than they probably ever have, and you know, everybody needs to make some money. So what is, like, are you guys starting to see out, out in LA or, you know, Southern California? Like, I know is my, there people I, coming back out to start playing gigs again? I mean, it, they are and they're not. So they are, even though there's all the infections, but the problem is because you have those infections, it's really, again, it's it's not what it should be or not what it is. Um, I know that I just read that Elton John had to cancel his show and Texas because he got COVID. 
Adele, 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 Elton John got COVID. Yes. Yeah. So he had to cancel shows. So Adele, what's happening is, is Adele, like had, her residency in Vegas, uh, a fear of COVID. Can't. Yeah. So it's killing it because even for the people that are going back out on the road, even the size of Elton John, you get it. You're you're sidelined. So another example is that Picard Star Trek series. I don't know how many people got infected, but enough for them to have to stop shooting because it spread so much that. It, you know, you had entire departments sick. Now, the good thing is, is like, you know, which I don't hear him say much is once you recover from that and you've been vaccinated, you're good to go. You're not going to get it again for at least six months. So those are the people you want. <laughs> like you should be working like, hey, did you get it? Are you vaccinated? We need you on set so we can all get back to work and start doing this thing. But I'm not really sure what's going on. And what I said is just an opinion. You and know? we're just seeing, you know, Pete, you've probably seen it too. Like, we had a buddy that was posting a bunch of these big festivals, you know, the big three day, you know, multi font posters. And I'm like, all right, well, it must, somebody must know something if they're greenlighting these big ass festivals, because Pete, as you know, those productions take hundreds of people to get off the ground and transporting the artists. And well, they're going to still try. I think on. But when yeah. it, when it comes to summertime and fall, the idea is that they will be able to get back to it. So they're going to continue to plan until which time it's not feasible until too much money is possibly going to get lost. But that's, I mean, I was talking about 40,000 infections here in LA, but it's the last couple of days have been, it's dropped down to the twenties. So we hear about this huge peak and then this huge drop. So as long as it continues to drop, we can be confident that, you know, we can kind of get back to it very, very soon, you know, regardless of someone's vaccination status of when the way this disease is moving around, we're going to reach herd immunity through natural because whether it's vaccination vaccination immunity or disease immunity you're going to have it either way so we're eventually going to reach it pretty soon because that thing is burning through us i mean it's burning through globally yeah man there's just so many bands like i keep you know i check i'm checking all the local venues back where i am and i'm just like oh, i want to see because you know you haven't had a chance to see a lot of live yeah, well you know i worked at, i had three things come out this year already two movies nightshade with lou ferrigno jr which i'm also really proud of and bj Britt. uh it's sort of this thriller i challenger which came out a week after on january 11th and just last week i worked on this album short movie with a band called boy harsher and their new album just came out called the runner very very cool very trippy little movie that accompanies the sound like that the album's a soundtrack to that movie but it's very cool came up with the concept during the pandemic and we had a premiere for it or they had a premiere for it in la a couple of weeks ago and they couldn't come down for it um they're supposed to be here next month to play let's see i think they're still coming through in february we'll see i don't think yeah, i mean is, every time i hear somebody has a screening to go to they <clears throat> nobody goes <laughs> it's, it's it's tough thing to ask people you still have it home. but you know it's yeah. like three people show up yeah and well you know for them they'd have to fly from you know massachusetts to come here for the screening mm. so they'll just be here for you know it's out on shutter now it's called uh, the runner by boy harsher but they're going to be touring here next month and as far as i know they haven't canceled so i'm looking forward to seeing them um not just the show but in person because i've been fortunately as one of the joys is when you become a fan of someone who does music and they are a fan of the stuff you do as movies or vice versa, back and forth. It's, it's, it's something special to get to know each other because you both love each other's work. One, what's cool about that though, and it goes to what you, 
is that it seems to me mm. like you know a lot of you, especially la guys i mean i'm from the east coast so i love hearing these old los angeles stories about you know little subsets of folks that all kind of creatively expand and grow together and that seems to be exactly what inspired even like by k-rock as you were mentioning all that music came through them so it, if you latched on to that kind of underground way of living out here you're it's it becomes easy for you to 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 roll like that it's just, i find that that aspect of your of your whole story really awesome man i really love it oh wow well i really appreciate that peter i mean some of it comes from growing up here not being a part of the mainstream you know I yeah mean, not physically at least anyways growing up in a beach town and not uh musically not not in a lot of ways i mean my taste was always just a little different you know so it's the idea of when you come out from the suburbs or you come out from another state or another part of the country to a place like la where being different sort of normal you know, and lends itself to that, then there's a comfort in it to where I know, and I still hear these conversations, oh, well, this is the best-selling album, and they made more money, and then it's like, well, who cares? I mean, I said, that's why you listen to stuff, watch stuff, I mean, that's cool, but that's why I won't watch something or won't listen to it, you know, and in my Absolutely. experience, it's like, I've, I've become very comfortable in picking up music or film of things that are in the nooks and the crannies and in the shadows. And I mean, I, I love all, all sorts of, just like music of all genres of film too. So I'm not saying I don't love big movies. I do, yeah. but you know, for instance, uh, Leo Carax, his early films, like uh, Mauvais Songs, like another film in the- Mauvais Song and the Lovers on the Pont Neuf. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's, that's like in my top 10. Yeah. Easily. It's such an incredible movie. The yeah, shots are incredible. Movie. Everything about it. And young Denis Leblanc is so electrical, but it, these movies that I love Holy Motors though too. So come on now. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, of course, I actually thought Holy Motors is brilliant when I saw I came out of nowhere. I love Leo Carax's films just in general. But I have to say, you know, it's you know, I actually was having this conversation on set two days ago because they were asking me about when I started watching movies. So my real first experience watching an independent film was at 17 going to this theater in Redondo Beach called the Bijou. Wow. Watching a film by Peter Greenway called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. That's on, that my, top, that's on my top 12 that favorite film. films of all time. That movie at 17, at the very beginning, <laughs> when they're stuffing the dog, the dog shit after they beat the they beat the hell out of this guy. Then these dogs shit, then they take the shit, then they wipe it in his mouth. Oh, yeah. Out, then Michael Gambone, you know, Dumbledore pulls it out and pisses down his throat. He's like, here's something to wash it down with, man. And that's how the film starts. And you've got this gorgeous oh, Helen Mirren in it. Oh, man. And a young Tim Roth. I mean... And a score by Michael Nyman, not to be... Yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's just hypnotic. That, it's I still have been that little angelic, androgynous scene. I still don't know if it's a yeah. point or it's the, the movie was just so different. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. And that... It's when my eyes open and I my top 12 favorite films of all time. It's a masterpiece. And I was like, I want to do independent, I want to work on it. I want to do independent film. I want, I mean, I want to do film. I want to, yeah. it's like, I'm not going to lie, Star Wars that made me want to be an actor. So you saw that, so that, you but, saw that, that was, came out in 89. So that's 89. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, uh, 89. Actually, I was 17. So it was a bijou in high yeah. school when I was a senior because I graduated in 90. I was 21 because I'm what, 10 days shy of being exactly four years old older than you so I I, I, I I saw that 21 and i saw that at the in westwood opening oh, wow, here in la yeah, yeah in, uh, in one of the main theaters uh 
the, whatever the big theater is there, the one of four of the main movie houses. I, I went all the way down to to watch, and I just remember uh, there there are two movies where I remember all I could think was fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, Roger, I saw that film. I'm only only just gonna say it was 1999 or 2000 and i was living in prague and it was wow, playing this old it was, it was it, the only reason i went is because i wanted to just get away from like get out by myself and see a film in english you know and, and, and just hear the english language and i loved it it was absolutely amazing it was old communist movie theater wooden seats and I said that it was absolutely amazing that's a perfect environment for that <laughs> really for any of his movies really yeah Awesome, man. Well, I mean, uh, I think we're coming to the end here. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to ask one qu- last question. Though, uh, uh, if you had a couple of movies, give me a couple of films that you think really, really inspired you. I mean, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and The Lover is one. Give us two or three more that, that, that hit a nerve. You don't have to go into too much detail. Just a quick skip of uh, the ones that uh, you know beat your chest believe it or not there's there's i have this written down because i think about these movies quite often and i talk about them over and over and starman by john carpenter is one of them good film my god that movie's so underrated i think something so different for him yeah and there that film is magical starman if you haven't seen it if you guys don't know it if you haven't seen it in a long time go back and watch it it's it tug at the heartstrings like no other um mikey and nikki oh god elaine may dude god turned me on to that and a lot of peter falk baby yeah so that's that's another one um mauve song uh diva yeah yeah these films inspire me you know because i do identify with some of the characters in these movies and and you know like the post the kid that was the postman and diva who loves the opera singer's music it just wants to i they're so wacky but like i was saying i'm kind of not kind of the mainstream guy you know so i like we were saying we all all of us here i think we all have that in common where we identify with that something that's different that's unique but just as power in some ways more powerful because it is so unique and in in you know i think gosh uh what's some so some of the other movies i have here uh i really loved hanover street that's one of my favorite Harrison Ford films with him and Christopher Plummer. I, I know the movie you're talking about. Not one of my favorite movies. This is where we differ. I yeah, that's and, and my. It's for me. It's more of a. It's a. It's a, it's kind of a. There's a, a romantic thing, but it, John Schlesinger directed it. The guy who did Midnight Cowboy, but it's not. I Street. No, that's Peter Hyam. No, I, Yanks is the one I was thinking of. Yanks came out right around the same time as Hanover Street, and Peter Hyams. Okay, did did. Uh, um, uh, there are two movies that are about that time uh, of the war, and and uh, they're both romantic war movies around the same time. I actually don't I, know the other film. I get them fucking yeah. confused all the time. But like Hanover Street, I, I thought, was, yeah, Hanover Street's really kind of it's tricky, but it, the performances between Christopher Plummer and Harrison Ford and Leslie Ann Down really Leslie Ann Down, that's the one. Okay, it really really made it for me. Um, but you know, I, I like. I also have more recent movies. I have The Lobster on here because I loved The Lobster. Your, I was just talking about your girls today. You know, talking about Dog Tooth and uh, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. 
he's right he's another there's so he's continuing the exact tradition of i think the things that we're all talking about he's the modern I, well yeah and so and it's still these these films you know of course blade runner yeah um mr lonely it's my favorite harmony corinne film that's a that's a solid harmony that's a that's a deep pick yeah, that's probably my favorite hoops because I think I'm, it's a deep I'm film. I love Gummo, Julian Donkey Boy, but I, yeah, I love Mr. Lonely too. Uh, but I love Gummo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when it comes to like the old Chinese movies, I love In the Mood for Love in 2046. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's you can't get Wong uh, Warcott. You can't get, you can't, yeah. That's, that's... Yeah. And then, and then to go from something beautiful like that to maybe something like the original Old Boy. Korean old boy. <clears throat> oh yeah, Chan Wook Park. Yeah. <clears throat> so these are the films on my on my list of just stuff I love over. And if I was to go really really early, so if I was to go to silent films like City of Lights to me, City by Charlie Chaplin is one of the greatest films ever made. Hell yeah. City of Lights, The General by Buster Keaton. Things that you know you you're watching it and it's funny and it's different and it's a silent, but you know the movie ends and it's like fucking J D. Salinger book. It just punches you right in the gut where you're like oh, is that what it, this is what wow he just summed this whole story up in one sentence i'm floored right now i can't believe it you need to come over and watch the movies with me jimmy anyway boys i think we, we need to wrap this up and uh last thoughts gentlemen. yeah jimmy i appreciate uh you coming on you've definitely given me a bunch of new bands that i'm going to be looking into and uh one thing to keep in mind is that uh our other partner nate he does a uh, soundtrack or a playlist for every episode we do. So he's going to have a lot of good material. And we'll share that with you and uh, hopefully you enjoy it. So uh, oh, appreciate your that. time, man. It's going to be cool. And uh, I'll thank come you, back thank another you for time. Me and I know I talk a lot. I appreciate you guys letting me know. Absolute pleasure, man. This is exactly what we're after. We love hearing about uh, people, you know, in the craft as you are. And it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Oh, gentlemen, thank you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, Raji. So I want to thank everybody for uh, listening today uh, on uh, this episode of $5 Buzz with our man, James Duvall. I've got my cat here with me, and this is uh, uh, Mabel. She's new. Mabel. Hi, Mabel. Mabel. Beautiful <laughs> um, saying hello. And uh, please hit like or subscribe and on our YouTube channel or on our Spotify or iTunes. Uh, for the audio only version uh, if you have any questions comments ideas for subjects and or uh, guests please email us at five dollar buzz and that's f-i-v-e-d-o-l-l-a-r-b-u-z-z at gmail.com and we will try to get back to you as soon as we get done zoning out on listening to some music that these boys have never heard before because the devil is my friend mm -hmm. all right ladies and gentlemen peace <laughs>